2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we examine how the warming climate is affecting a cider business that uses locally grown apples. We do things that other growers in other regions just simply do not have to think about. And we explore the potential local implications of a court case that could decide the fate of a federal vaccine mandate for companies with more than 100 workers. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Paramedics around Colorado have used ketamine hundreds of times to sedate people with a condition called excited delirium. The practice was suspended in July after the passage of a new state law meant to rein in its use in the presence of police. Now, a panel of medical experts assembled by the state's top public health official have concluded that excited delirium has racist implications and should not be used as a justification to sedate people. Here to talk about that is KUNC investigative reporter Michael DeJuana. Michael, welcome. Hi, Aaron. Now, the panel has recommendations for sedating people in the future. First, remind us what excited delirium is.
3: Yeah, excited delirium is a condition that emergency room doctors have encountered, people who are Agitated, uh, acting bizarrely, stuck in physiological fight or flight mode. Uh, Many uh, people um, are on stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamine, and some have overexerted themselves to such an extreme point that they have died. Uh, KUNC did a series of investigations last year into paramedics' use of ketamine to sedate people said to have this condition. One of the experts we spoke to was retired Dr. Mark Debar. a professor emeritus of emergency medicine at Ohio State University. He played a key role in helping to define excited delirium. He said he first started noticing cases in the 1990s. By the early 2000s, it became
0: obvious uh, that we were seeing more and more cases of this. And I start reading
2: about them all over the country uh, in custody of law enforcement and EMS dying before they get to the hospital.
3: So DeBard formed a task force with peers around the country who were seeing the same kinds of cases. And in 2009, they issued a white paper through the American College of Emergency Physicians. It defined excited delirium syndrome and how to treat it.
0: You can't talk these people down. You have to intervene medically, usually with sedative medications. It calms the entire body down, uh, and
3: it interrupts this feedback loop, uh, allowing their body to return to normal.
2: And how did they decide on uh, ketamine?
3: Ketamine is a powerful drug, and emergency doctors like it because it acts so quickly. But you know, obviously they can't administer it themselves as uh, situations that Dr. DeBard told us about are occurrences in public places or people's homes. Typically, what happens is someone calls 911. And because of that, police are on scene along with paramedics. So it's the paramedics who give the ketamine. And in the last decade or so, this practice of sedating people said to have excited delirium has spread to at least 34 states. That's according to K. UNC's own count because nobody's tracking this.
2: Right. And, of course, that number includes Colorado.
3: Yes. uh, But as you noted earlier, when a new law was enacted, the state suspended the practice. And at least one agency, Aurora Fire Rescue, seems to have abandoned its use altogether. Um, That's the agency, by the way, that sedated 23-year-old black massage therapist Elijah McClain in 2019. I'll say more on how his death factors into all of this, as well as the law, in a second. But first... Um, we need to go back um, more than a year to August of 2020 when Jill Hunsacker Ryan, the executive director of the state's Department of Public Health and Environment, announced the panel of medical experts and what she called a thorough review of the waiver system that allows paramedics to sedate extremely agitated people with ketamine.
2: Right. I remember when that was convened.
3: Yeah, and it came amid uh, fairly intense media scrutiny. There were cases where it wasn't clear whether some people who had been sedated even had excited delirium. And um, it was launched after KUNC's investigation that found paramedics around the state sedated people 902 times for excited delirium and extreme agitation in a two and a half year period. About, you know, by the way, Dr. Debar told us that was about 15 times more cases than he'd expect to see.
2: Well, and I remember the promise was that the panel was supposed to issue findings in about three months.
3: Yes, so obviously it took them a lot longer than that to complete their 125-page report. Um, You know, they did their work quietly behind the scenes, not talking to the media, not even identifying who was on the panel. But now that the report is out, we know the people on the panel, most of them doctors with a range of relevant expertise to ketamine, uh, behavioral health, emergency medicine, and so forth. I, I spoke to some of them about their report's top-line finding that says excited delirium is linked to racism and should not be used as a basis to sedate a person. Here's a member of the panel, Leslie Brooks, a family and addiction medicine doctor who works in Larimer and Weld counties. She says excited delirium is a sketchy diagnosis.
0: It lacks a unifying uh, criteria. It lacks specificity. Um, It is incredibly subjective with use of non-medical criteria such as hyper aggressiveness, increased strength, um, as well as failure to respond to police commands, things that are so subjective um, that they that they disproportionately uh, impact uh, communities uh, of color. And so we very squarely said um, that that is not a valid uh, diagnosis, and we're not alone in that. There are national organizations that we align with. The American Medical Association has said the same. The World Health Organization and the American Psychiatric Association also don't recognize this diagnosis.
3: Now, this isn't to say that paramedics won't encounter extremely agitated people. Um, The panel also understands that sedating them with ketamine might save their lives. But those cases are expected to be extremely rare, limited to people who present, quote, a serious probable Imminent threat of bodily harm to self or others. Um, that's according to the report. Luis Verduzco, an anesthesiology and critical care doctor on the panel, said before that point is reached, there should be efforts to de escalate a situation and to calm people. And and moreover, uh, that if ketamine is used, the paramedics must make the decision independently based on their training.
4: We were recommending that in situations that a patient is severely agitated, that they are a threat to themselves or others, a threat that is severe, that's probable, that's imminent, and where verbal de-escalation and potentially physical restraint, if appropriate, um, have failed. And in the situation where the paramedic, and I I make that very clear, at the sole discretion of the paramedic, not the passerby who's walking across the street, not the police officer but the paramedic that upon his discretion his or her discretion that they feel that the patient needs to be chemically restrained so that we can evaluate the patient to try to obtain a diagnosis then ketamine is appropriate
3: Now, this concern about police influence comes up in a few cases that we reported on, including Elijah McLean's. In his case, an independent report to the city of Aurora earlier this year found that paramedics appeared to accept officers' impressions that McLean had excited delirium without corroborating that impression through meaningful observation or diagnostic examination. That report also found that McLean was given an excessive dose of ketamine for his weight. The, the issue of appropriate ketamine dosages is addressed in the report, too, with a specific weight dose recommendations. There's also a call for racial equity and implicit bias training in the report.
2: Well, these recommendations appear to align with that new state law, the protection of persons from restraint that Governor Polis signed over the summer summer.
3: Yes, and we reported um, on that bill in the process um, throughout um, the earlier part of this year. I I asked a co-sponsor of the bill, Representative Leslie Harrod, a Denver Democrat, uh, what she thought. She wasn't available for an interview, but in a statement, she said she was heartened to see the panel establish a careful process for the oversight and administration of the drug. She was glad to see a recommendation to require data collection and that it rejected uh, Excited delirium as a diagnosis because it is prone to racism.
2: So what comes next?
3: Well, I asked that question to Colorado's chief medical officer, Dr. Eric France. Uh, He chaired the panel. He said the next steps will be to circulate the report to state health officials and local medical organizations, including EMS agencies. I expect a a strong communication with these entities as well as with our communities who are impacted by the policies and practices in paramedic care. Uh, And from there, in 2022, I think we'll be working towards interpreting and defining whether there's a role for ketamine in the future as part of the Armamentarium for Chemical Restraint I should say some of those agencies have been staunch defenders of the practice. I'm reaching out to them for their perspectives as the report circulates, as uh, there will be big questions here for the emergency doctors and EMS agencies who want to use the drug to sedate extremely agitated people.
2: Well, Michael, I have one final thought. The recommendations... Are just that, their recommendations. Will there be stricter oversight of how ketamine is used? I'm wondering who is going to keep an eye, if at all, on how law enforcement chooses to use this or not going forward. Yeah,
3: well, one area um, in the report um, regarding oversight is that the panel discovered Colorado is one of only two states that do not license EMS or ambulance agencies at the state level. And that limits the state's ability to investigate complaints. Um, the panel recommended that the state consider changing that to create more uniform standards and protocols, along with oversight to assure consumer protection.
2: All right. We'll leave it there for now. Michael Deoana is KUNC's investigative reporter. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: You're welcome.
2: Last month, federal health and safety officials announced an emergency temporary standard mandating COVID-19 vaccines for companies with more than 100 workers. Now, numerous lawsuits challenging the mandate have been consolidated into a case that's being heard by the Sixth Circuit Court. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more about that vaccine requirement, how it could impact companies, and the potential implications that could come from the court case. And all of this comes as we get closer to the one-year mark since the COVID vaccines first became available here in Colorado. This month on Colorado Edition, we'll be talking about the impact of the vaccine, how the state of the pandemic has shifted, and how it hasn't since that first shipment of vaccines arrived last December. And we want to hear from you. How has your life changed since COVID vaccines became available? What's gone back to normal for you and what will never be the same? You can leave us a voicemail at 970-703-4081 or send us an email at KUNC.org. We may use your message in an upcoming episode of our show. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. One of the driest autumns in recent memory is wrapping up along the Front Range. Denver's winter has started with a whimper, and the parched mountains to the west aren't faring much better. The Mile High City has already shattered its 87-year-old record for the latest measurable snowfall. It's also a little more than a week away from breaking an 1887 record of 235 days straight without snow. As enjoyable as the weather is, climate scientists warn that prolonged drought could threaten the region's water supply. The scenario is playing out across the Rockies and the broader western United States, which is experiencing a mega drought that studies link to human-caused climate change. And that climate change is also having an impact on the state's agricultural sectors, including the fruit grown on the western slope. KUNC's Ray Solomon has more. This
0: is Ashmaid's kernel. It's just a lovely, lovely, lovely apple.
1: Carrie Williams owns Snowcapped Cider outside of Cedar Edge, Colorado. They craft hard ciders exclusively from Colorado-grown apples.
0: So in here I have cider apples from France and England that we grow. I have my regular stuff that I'm juicing. I have with a plethora of things, and cider apples are still coming in.
1: It all started years ago when she married into a fruit-growing legacy.
0: My husband, is a fourth generation fruit grower, and the family has been growing
1: stone fruit and apples in the Surface Creek area for 109 years. Their vast apple orchards and packing facilities are centered in Delta County. And at an elevation of 6,130 feet, it's not the most obvious area to grow fruit. You know, it's very unpredictable and it can
0: be very volatile. And so in the spring, you know, we have to be
1: prepared for many different things. Including the likelihood of an unseasonal frost, which is why they have an array of protocols to handle that kind of situation. From aggressive pruning throughout winter to wood fires, propane heaters, and wind machines to warm up the air. We have
0: to work very, very hard to grow at this elevation. We do things to grow here that other growers in other regions just simply do not have to think
1: about to survive, to grow fruit in this area. And Williams has tapped into that hard-won, intergenerational fruit-growing knowledge to cultivate her traditional cider-specific apples. Cider apples are to cider what
0: wine grapes are to wine.
1: They're amazing and hard to grow overall she says they are small produce little juice and they're disease ridden but all the extra effort is worth it in her family's colorado orchards because of the unique qualities the region's climate bestows on the fruit
0: the flavor is just so intense compared to other growing regions and whether it be a sweet tart apple like the honeycrisp or whether it be a Dabinett, you know english cider apple I'm telling you that it is producing very hyper expressive flavor. That's why we do it. It's
1: incredible fruit. I think it's freshness. Horst Kaspari is a horticulture professor at Colorado State University. He's also the state viticulturalist.
4: High mountain air.
0: In, in, in a food product.
1: <laughs> Kaspari says some combination of Colorado's high UV radiation, alkaline soils, and snowmelt irrigation accounts for the terroir of the fruit.
4: When we have no explanation for anything else,
2: we call it terroir. It's the soil, the environment, the human spirit, whatever. That's that's terroir. That's unique to this place. Exactly what it is. If you knew that, you wouldn't call it terroir.
1: Perhaps the most important ingredient, he says, is the swing in temperature between the region's hot days and cool nights.
2: High light, good photosynthesis, will give you more, more sugar. The nice thing about the higher elevation is during cooler night conditions, respiration is reduced.
1: But as the climate changes, those temperature swings are becoming more extreme. In 2020, the area experienced one of the warmest Octobers on record and a major freeze during the same month.
4: We were running
2: 70s, 80s, and we should be running 60s or 50s. All our plants were fully leaf, green leaves, being happy because it was nice and warm. And then we went to 14.
1: Kaspari says that killed a lot of plants all the way down to the roots. He estimates the Grand Valley lost 70% of its various crops. And for Bruce Talbot, that includes peaches, cherries, and wine grapes.
3: In the end, probably 40% of everything we have is damaged to the point it will shorten the life of those orchards, if not uh, require them to be replaced
1: immediately. Talbot is the farm manager at Talbot's Mountain Gold. Like a lot of Western Slope growers, he's skeptical that those weather events are linked to human-caused climate change. But he recognizes a central irony that the very same temperature fluctuations that make Colorado fruit so outstanding could become the region's biggest liability.
3: Extremes within a range are good for us,
0: uh, but extremes outside of that range are going to be destructive. It's very sporadic where the damage is. You can see, you know, some roads behind me, whole
1: orchards are dead, whole peach orchards are just brown. The trees are brown. Back at her apple orchard, Carrie Williams says they've replaced 150,000 trees since the big freeze in 2020. Then you've got a little spot like this little beautiful French cider apple
0: block, and it almost looks like wine grapes growing on the wire. Just depends on where that cold
1: settled down in. Some trees got lucky. They survived and went on to deliver a bountiful harvest this year. Ray Solomon, KUNC.
2: Last month, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration announced an emergency temporary standard mandating COVID-19 vaccines for employees at companies with more than 100 workers. The mandate was then challenged by numerous lawsuits, which were consolidated into a single case that's now being heard by the Sixth Circuit Court. The court's decision is expected to come down in a matter of weeks. Tommy Wood, a reporter for BizWest, has been reporting on the mandate and how it may impact Colorado businesses if it remains in place after the court's ruling. And he joins us now for more. Tommy, thank you so much for being here.
5: Thank you guys for having me.
2: To start, can you tell us a little more about this OSHA mandate? What does it say?
5: Yeah, so what it says is that if you're a company that has more than 100 employees, and it it doesn't matter if these employees are at one location or, you know, spread across multiple locations, it's just 100 employees or more in the company, they all have to be vaccinated unless they have a religious or medical uh, exemption. And companies do have the option of uh, giving, giving some employees the option to get uh, weekly COVID tests and, uh, instead of getting vaccinated, although not every company uh, is giving their employees the option to take the tests instead of vaccination.
2: Okay. And when is the deadline for this to happen?
5: So the deadline for businesses to be in compliance to prove their compliance is January 4th. Uh, So it's coming up quite quickly. And that's why this uh, legal battle is so interesting, because if uh, if this mandate does make it through the court system intact, then businesses who are subject to it are going to have very little time, uh, you know, to actually get up to compliance if they haven't been doing so already.
2: Right. Well, I want to talk about what the kind of the rub here is. Multiple lawsuits have been filed against the mandate. What are those lawsuits
5: saying? Yeah, those lawsuits are saying a number of different things. Um, uh, some are saying that the this mandate is an overreach on OSHA's part, and that it does not have the uh, ability to to regulate this. Um, some are looking at the language of the mandate and saying that it doesn't constitute the, the type of threat that uh, to workers that OSHA is is allowed to uh, regulate against. Um, so they're mostly focusing on on that, on what OSHA has the ability to do uh, and what they have the ability to uh, kind of protect workers from.
2: People are wondering, you know, do they have the authority to do this? I'm wondering, is there any precedent for OSHA mandating vaccines in the workplace?
5: Uh, there really is is not. Uh, this is something that is kind of um, kind of unprecedented, actually. Uh, one of the sources I interviewed for my story, who's a Uh, A human, a human resources lawyer uh, in Boulder, she said to me that uh, this is something we've never seen before. Um, So it really is totally fresh ground from a legal perspective, from a human resources perspective and from a business perspective.
2: Right. It's potentially within the scope of enforcing health and safety for workers. But we're just going to have to wait and see. It sounds like. Yeah. And what have you been hearing from Colorado businesses about the mandate uh, there? As you mentioned, there isn't a lot of time to get this in before the January 4th deadline. Are they starting to prepare now? Are they just waiting to see what happens?
5: They are. Yeah, they are starting to prepare now. And, and some companies actually have implemented their own mandates, you know, independent of OSHA, um, you know, some even predating the, the OSHA mandate. So we have seen some companies you know, take this into their own hands and decide that they want all their workers to be vaccinated. Um, and, and we're also seeing, uh, you know, organizations like the Boulder Chamber, uh, you know, the Fort Collins Chamber of, of Commerce um, are really uh, encouraging businesses to get all their employees vaccinated, uh, you know, just, just in case that this does come down so that you're not, uh, you know, scrambling to get into compliance. Um, and, you know, if you are going to be offering the, uh, the testing, uh, as an alternative to vaccination you know that's something that you have to be setting up now because there are a lot of considerations that uh, go into uh, testing your employees every week
2: well as we mentioned these lawsuits have been consolidated into one what is the status of it now
5: yeah so right now uh we're waiting for the sixth circuit to rule on uh, the stay that was put on this mandate so that the uh, this started in the in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the Fifth Circuit Court put a stay on the mandate, uh, preventing OSHA from implementing it or enforcing it. And right now, the federal government is challenging that stay. Um, so we're expecting the Sixth Circuit to r- rule on that um, this week or next week.
2: Tommy Wood is a reporter for Biz West. You'll find a link to his piece at our website, KUNC.org. Tommy, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, the future earning power behind a college degree is significant. But a look at degree attainment rates show that some parts of the population are facing big disparities in higher education. We'll hear about an organization in Weld County that's helping women get into higher ed and leave with degrees in hand. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Jackie High is our digital editor. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.